Today on the show, we're questioning our other memories and, well, our actual memories too. What day is it? I don't know. I don't keep track anymore. Who are you? I'm, I think I'm Abu. Okay. <laughs> if, if I had to guess, I think I'm the one named Abu. This, this tattoo on my knuckle is more confusing than it is reassuring. <laughs> it just says Amtal. <laughs> hey, that's a cool knuckle tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we are opening up your distress. Something, something distress. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. That joke just keeps coming back. It's a mailbag episode. Ugh. It is. And this mailbag episode is part of our ongoing God Emperor of Dune book club series. Indeed. So the spoiler warning will be the same as every other book club episode. Our conversation today will contain no spoilers beyond the books and pages that we have covered thus far on this podcast. So as long as you are caught up with the reading as of the last book club episode... Right. You're good to go for today. And our last bit of housekeeping up at the top here. A huge, huge shout out to our Quisats Hatterack level patron. That's right. Case Aiken. Case, these sorts of episodes are a lot of fun because we get a lot of questions about a lot of things. But one thing we never question is how generous you've been yes. in supporting us here at Gam Jabbar. And we thank you for it, sir. We do indeed. There's nothing to question there at all. And if we <laughs> yeah. ever get a question about it, we'll delete it. Yeah. We got an email that said, is Case Aiken actually generous? And we actually hired a hitman to take yes. out that person. Yeah. So don't you worry. <laughs> don't you worry. <laughs> that's a joke. That's we a joke. We didn't hire Legally, a hitman that's a joke. to kill someone. <laughs> Legally, <laughs> that's a joke. Case, thank you so much for your generosity. Of course, our gratitude extends to all of our patrons and all of our listeners who tune in every week and help make this show possible. We genuinely and seriously could not do this without you. It's true. Okay. With housekeeping out of the way, we're going to take a quick, tiny little break because mm -hmm. we got a lot of questions to get through. Yeah. We need all of our stamina gathered to do it. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, folks, welcome back. Let's dive right into our questions for today. Starting with an email from Drew. Drew writes, if you had to choose, who do you think would play Moneo? Interesting. We got a lot of questions about like casting in we movies. We did. Clearly the delay of part two that was supposed to come out, oh, I don't know, fucking nine <laughs> days ago, but who's counting, uh, is still on people's minds. Certainly. 
Yeah. I also like to think that these are perhaps HBO execs and they're testing us, <laughs> right? They got that blank check ready and yeah. they're te- we're on to you, Drew. Okay. Yeah. You're going to love our Drew, answers. He's the top. We, <laughs> we, go, <laughs> we go to see the adaptation casting director, Drew Ozagara. Oz, Oz, we're like, what the, you motherfucker. You motherfucker. <laughs> you bastard. Okay. To well, answer, hey, answer Drew's I, question. Looking, yeah. 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 And I was going to say, looking at her answers, I think if you took our suggestions, these are all great suggestions. These are great. So yes. Kick it off, Abu. What, who would you who would you cast as the hot silver fox, Moneo? That's right. That's right. Well, I'd have to cast someone who's a hot silver fox actor. And for me, this was very easy because every time I read the book, I picture Moneo as Jeremy Irons. Every time he's mm. just Jeremy yeah. Irons in my mind. Because of that gravitas that Jeremy Irons has on the screen, that amazing accent, that like sort of gravelly voice he's got. And of course, he is fucking like pushing 70 something. I looked up his age recently, but I forget. And he's still so good looking for like a 70 plus year old man who's still acting. He is, in my mind, the perfect actor to play Moneo Atreides. I also want to shout out that he was particularly excellent in the amazing 10 out of 10 nearly perfect tv show watchmen by hbo he played adrian white in that show and he was a central character and my goodness did he knock it out of the park so if jeremy irons can bring that energy to moneo atreides we're in for a good time i will say because he is pushing 70 he might be retiring any day now i also wanted to throw a quick backup option in as my choices And my backup person is Gary Oldman. And specifically, Gary Oldman and his look from the 2011 not-so-great forgettable movie called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The movie sucked, but Gary Oldman's look in it is perfect for Moneo. He's quite diverse in the way he looks, and makeup can do a lot of different things, but I think Gary could pull, pull it off as well. I actually saw that movie in theater, but it was like maybe like a month or two after the movie had come out and it was way later than it should have been in theater, but it was at this small Incredible. shitty theater yeah. in Los Angeles that like sh- didn't have the budget to get new movies. So it's just Amazing. like, there. Yeah. and it was fine, but yeah, you're right. Very forgettable. Not that great. <laughs> Gary Oldman's great in most of the stuff he's in. He there, so good yeah. choice. Good choice. Okay. What about you? What are your choices for Moneo? Oh yeah. So this is this is a little tough. Moneo is one of those like you have to thread the needle, right? Like he's got a he was a rebel. He is physically capable enough to topple Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho, but he's a paper pusher and bureaucrat, and you need to be able to like you know underestimate him. So I was actually thinking, I don't know what how I came came to this, but I was thinking Jason Isaacs. Okay, and. Jason Isaacs is best known for playing Lucius Malfoy. Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. With like the crazy blonde wig. Right. He has these like piercing blue eyes. He's got really this kind of dark hair. But like if you watch him in movies, he's always got this like serious gravitas. He plays a lot of villains, a lot of bad guys, or a lot of like like high up military commanders. He's got this sort of presence to right. his on-screen persona. So, I think 
first of all, he's hot enough to be in an adaptation of Dune. So yes. I think he's just he's just baseline hot enough. Right. There is a and, requirement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He checks that box pretty healthily. Uh, and he can be that kind of serious brooding fella, but also he is a certified cutie, charming guy when he's like talking and being nice and friendly. So I think he could be that kind of charming ex-rebel who's maybe at first you think he's been behind the desk for too long. But I think he still has the gravitas to be way more formidable later than you expect him to be. Yeah. And then because you did a backup, I wanted to do a backup. Of so I'm yeah, going yeah. to say another super obscure person, Mark Rylance. And Mark Rylance was in a bunch of awesome stuff recently. If you look at his IMDb, it's crazy. He's been in a bunch of stuff. But there is a 2022 movie called The Outfit in which he's the main character, which is fucking awesome it's like one of the best written movies of Mm -hmm. 2022 it's a a suit cutter who kind of gets involved with the mafia basically and he has to talk his way out of being killed whatever but he is so good like his performance is electric in that movie it's a really good movie i recommend it to everybody uh but he has that like he has awesome acting chops he's an he's a handsome older guy and because of that movie, the range that he has to play, I think he does the like guy no one takes seriously mm-hmm. very, very, very well. Like the invisible okay. person that people don't really pay attention to. So yeah, two yeah, kind of off picks. the beaten path picks, but you know, I think Moneo kind of has to be. Uh, I think the through line for all of our picks though is hot older man. I, I think that is unquestionable, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, if you're going to cast Moneo, that is the baseline where you begin, and then you, you uh, get pickier from there. That is, without any kind of joke or exaggeration, almost word for word, my first search on Google when I was just like, <laughs> let's gather some candidates. Hot, older, man, actor. Actor. Like, yep. yeah, yeah. It yeah, definitely. <laughs> very silly. Yeah. Well, there you go, Drew. If you're an HBO exec, those are our picks to cast Moneo in the future adaptation that HBO is clearly planning. So hit us up, Drew. We're ready for that blank check whenever you're ready to send it over. And thank you for the great question. Anytime, Drew. All right. Up next, we have an email from Matthew Dryling. Matthew writes, quote, What are some of Leto's insights that you guys felt were the most perceptive? Personally, I keep thinking about the line about all rebels being closet aristocrats, which makes them easily won over by tyrants. End quote. Yeah. Super cool question, Matthew. Yeah. Also, another really hard question to answer because this book is 99% Leto on his soapbox. Definitely. Just spitting quotes, like spitting ideas. Totally. Yeah. It's a fun question. And that aristocrat line a couple of folks have written into us about that definitely is one of the Leto insights that sticks with a lot of people, his thoughts on aristocrats or even his thoughts on a good administrator versus a bad administrator is just five heartbeats. It's the people who can make decisions versus the people Mm. who can't. Those things I think we've chattered about because we've sort of covered that ground on the book club so far. And The way I wanted to answer this question was to try and hone in on perhaps a different idea or a different quote that we haven't given as much attention yet. 
on the podcast. And so here's what I selected as an answer to Matthew's question. Leto says, quote, Most believe that a satisfactory future requires a return to an idealized past, a past which never, in fact, existed. End quote. Man, it's giving kind of like red baseball cap. It's kind of giving... Uh, <laughs> it's giving a lot of chanting. It's, it's giving yeah. a lot of name calling. Lock him up. <laughs> <laughs> I love this quote. I love mm. this quote because it's so relevant as you are not so subtly hinting at. It's so relevant to today, all of these decades later. But it's so important to the main themes of the Dune saga itself. Yeah. I mean, it, it encapsulates almost everything we have talked about since literally the first episode of the first book club of the first book. These big Dune themes, right? This quote is a warning, for example, against stagnation, against binding oneself too strongly to tradition or to the status quo. It's also a condemnation of corrupt institutions and the charismatic leaders who rule them. Yeah, no kidding. Whether that's religious or political or military, right? Throughout this book, Leto has gone after all of those groups in one way or another. And in this quote, he's doing the same. Uh, And I think even reading further into the quote, to me, it's also a plea right? It's a plea to humanity to dream of of a future that has never existed and to embrace the chaotic surprise of the unknown, right? A satisfactory future does not require an idealized past that never existed. It, it requires thinking of something new, of change, of the opposite of stagnation, right? Yeah. And I think what ultimately makes this idea so powerful and so resonant for me is that it's coming from a character that can fucking confirm that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, Grandpa might think things were better back in his day, but Grandpa's memory ain't what it used to be. Leto 2's memory is perfect. He can tell you exactly what it was like back in the day, Grandpa, okay? And it was still shit. And so having Leto 2, the character, knowing what we know about his abilities, say this idea makes it that much more powerful. Because he, the Kwisatz Haderach, with infinite other memories, can confirm that this idealized past that you worship, or this tradition that you think is so important, is not. And he can say that for certain. And so... I love this idea, and it, it's relevant all throughout not just this book, but throughout the whole Dune saga. I love that this ties into why Leto believes so strongly in Siona as this harbinger of the future, right? She represents what humanity can and should be. And it's not that Siona's brash, headstrong, chaotic nature is what's holding her back. That is what is pushing her forward. That's setting her up for the future. She does things like question authority She believes that things can and should change. She refuses to just passively stand by and accept the status quo, to accept the universe that Leto has thrust upon her and the rest of humanity. And she's out here doing stuff that is like, you know, breaking tradition and probably breaking Moneo's heart too, right? He's like, oh, I have this whole career path set out for you. You're going to be a fish speaker. We're going to be in service to the Lord and it's going to be great. And she's like, nah, 
I'm going to do things I'm going to do mushrooms way. and get a septum piercing. And he's like, <laughs> you're breaking my heart. Right, exactly. She's like, I got a sleeve tattoo. He's like, ah. Yeah, <laughs> no. exactly. So this is my very long-winded and overly dense response to Matthew. Basically, I love this quote from Leto. I love this idea that a better future for humanity is something new. It has not been done before. And to look into the past in order to figure out the future is a fool's errand. And ultimately, we all need to be more like Siona, right? She's punk rock as hell, and we need to all be more punk rock. Get that septum piercing, y'all. Yeah, it's funny. I'm thinking about running because of running, you know? Yeah, of course. And th- there was this, there was this uh, running coach who was saying that, like, no two runs are ever the same. Right? Like, running is running, but it's not. And every run is completely different. And part of the point that he was making, I think, is applicable here. You can think about a time and you can think about qualities of that time that maybe you individually preferred, but you cannot actually go back to that time. Even in recreating elements of that time, it is not returning to that time. And to believe that you can go back to a time is to lie to yourself and to be wrong in the offset. So like... It's funny because that most believe that a satisfactory future requires a return to a past. Right. That's not even possible. Most are lying to themselves and are mistaken. Right. There is no return. You know, it's like there is no return. There are elements from the past that will return, but it's always to a new future that has new elements. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's cool. It's It's a very concise way of saying something very profound that even today... So many people fucking struggle to get their heads around. Absolutely. I'm also like, do you really want to go back to the 1940s? Try to get some good Indian food in the 1940s, <laughs> idiot. Where Vegetable are you getting samosa your samosas? Are the are the best thing <laughs> in the goddamn world? All right. Yeah. You fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It reminds me of a book, I, the title of which I can't recall at the moment. Is it the but... Bible? <laughs> You know, there was an idealized past in that book that I was kind of down with. No, it it was a book. It was this nonfiction book. Um, Basically, the premise of the book is that the world, while it feels like everything is going to shit, and many things are, is still objectively better than it was 100, 200, 300, 500 years ago. Yeah. You know, like more people are dying less, more people are living longer, childbirth rates are the lowest they've ever been in human history. Like on a large enough scale, humans are doing better. While it feels like we are headed towards the apocalypse, and we may be in some ways, (laughs) it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that it did not used to be better even 50, 60, 80 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And this idea from Leto really speaks to that. It's like, there has never been a better time to be a human being than today. And there will never be a better time than tomorrow, just because of the advancements. So here's the thing. The thing that has gotten better is that one in five babies doesn't die now. Yes. Or like, or there's some like, it used to be that if you had a kid, you would roll a die and on like three and below the kid dies. Full just on, like, yeah. okay. And now that life expectancy goes down. So the thing that kept life expectancy low was like infant mortality, which didn't start getting better in the last like 200 years. It's insane 
how good so many things have gotten today. Definitely. And that, that again, that's not to minimize the problems that exist now and will make the future worse. But it is sort of this realization that, again, to Leto's idea, there was no idealized past. The beautiful past you think was like archaic and ancient and down to earth and people weren't stuck on their phones all the time and it was better then and uh, we all were farming and we should all go back to farm. I don't know. You know, like you always hear this. Like, let, let's go back to our human roots. And it's like, bro, people were fucking dying in those human roots all the time. Yeah. You are not dying, okay? You're yeah. just, like, addicted to TikTok. Delete the app. So <laughs> I, I think that book really, like, changed my perspective. And I read it years ago. I, re- I read it maybe, like, six, seven years ago. And I still think about it, like, Damn. every week. Um, but anyway, that, that, that's me rambling on for too long. What about you? What, what Leto insights from the book so far have uh, really resonated with you? Dude, every other chapter, there's something that I highlight that I'm like, that's sick. I like that a lot. Right. Leto so, pop off. There's, there's a lot. And I'm sure that if I spent like an hour looking through the book, I would find a bunch that would change my answer entirely. But today, I'll say there's two that jumped out. The first is, quote, they will seek truth, but the truth always carries the ambiguity of the words used to express it. End quote. And... I like this quote a lot because at least as I've gotten into my like thirties, like I've fallen into over my life, I fall into so many long winded conversations about like, what's our purpose in life? What does it mean to be a good person? What is morality? What is ethics in, mm. in an ever complicating universe where ah, we have different so art degree religions and faiths? I know. So <laughs> how's that working out for me? <laughs> Whether there's a God, things like that, you know, typical yeah. things that our art majors talk about. <laughs> but it was only in the last like five or six years, literally, that I started looking at like words and words as a means to identify ideas and concepts and like words as the tools of our reckoning. And why are they useful? And more importantly, why are they dangerous? Like, what is the danger of falling into mistaking reality for words that use or that are used to describe reality? Like, there are so many peer-reviewed studies that link the way we perceive the world with the words that we are equipped to articulate about mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a few words missing from that sentence, but the idea being like, <laughs> you know, the there there was even it was like perception of color depending on the language that you speak, you have so many words to describe the different blues of the sky because it has so much to do with the weather pattern changing and that sort of thing. And so you can tell, just you can perceive very obviously, boom, that's a different blue than that blue. But it's wild because legitimately in some of these studies, you have people unable to see between like a blue and a green because it's just not, there. there's no word for it in their language. And it's like, how then does that relate to how I identify myself and how do I, I have this uh, emotional pattern in my life. Do you? You do. But do you? <laughs> how much do you? How, where does it start and end? Does it start with the definition and that definition codifies it and solidifies it and it becomes that? Or was it that? Exactly. And you just happen to have the precise fucking words coincidentally (laughs) to describe the complex neurochemical pattern that you're trying to like suss out in hindsight. It's 
chaos. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh, it, in, incredible. Because again, I, I could talk about this for fucking years. But I like Leto's quote because he makes it clear. What truth there is to know is only obscured by the limitations of language. Like, we can get toward it collectively through talking about it. But the limitations of language, the ambiguity of words, is something that will always get in the way. And it's through the expression of truth or the attempt to express truth that ambiguity is introduced. Right. Yeah, language itself is just another way to communicate the human experience. And there is this like philosophical idea that there is the truth, truth, and then there's this distance. And then there's the language and the art that we use to try and describe it. Yeah. And Leto is getting at that idea here that there is like the truth, truth, and then the way we try to capture it. And even language itself is not the truth, truth. It is a way to try and describe it in some way, but it inherently comes with its own baggage and its own interpretations. Yeah. I mean, I think about it's like if you think about a time that you felt this kind of ballooning of emotion, whether it's like you're sad, but you're also relieved and you're anxious and you're feeling powerless maybe, but also maybe there's a feeling of like, no, but I've got this, I've got this resilience. And like all of those things are there in this cloud of emotion that you're feeling. And then someone's like, yo, how you doing? And you're like, I'm all right. (laughs) Like (laughs) the reality of expression is so limited and you can try. And I think when people really dig into attempting to express that becomes poetry and it becomes prose and it becomes memoirs and it becomes storytelling and the thing that resonates i think and i think the reason art and storytelling and music exists is because there are feelings and emotions that are so far beyond the colloquial casual conversations that we're having every day i'm fine you say oh i've heard i am sad or i'm fine or uh i've been a little down recently you hear that a million times and then you hear my mood was the wilting leaf floating upon the empty lake on a cold autumn morning and you go oh my god i'm not alone that that resonates with me beyond the words that were chosen to to express it because yeah. i fucking know that feeling and it's not just i'm sad and right. I'm sad is said so often it feels like this kind of intellectualism versus something that is so clearly a moment in time you go, oh, I'm not alone. And that is, I think, the power of art. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're I think you're spot on. I love your soapbox. And I just want to say to <laughs> all of you. my fellow wilting leaves in autumn out there, we see you. <laughs> we see you. Wilting leaves, rise up. <laughs> wilting leaves rise up. You may be detached from the tree. You may be on your way to death. But hey, so is everything. No, every, uh, every, every sadness and every darkness ends, and the world is better because you're in it. Wilting leaves <laughs> rise up. <laughs> Hashtag wilting leaves crew. <laughs> wilting. <laughs> okay. Uh, my second quote. I'll, I'll keep this one brief. Um, quote. Anything and anyone can fail, he said. 
but brave good friends help. Oh, love it. Uh, there are so many quotes in this book that I think are worth celebrating and keeping in mind and thinking about and talking about. But ending that chapter where Hui is like, are you sure you're going to succeed in this? Like, are you're sure you're not going to fail? And he's like, anything and anyone can fail, but brave good friends help. Yeah. It really like lands and ending that chapter that way. It felt very profound and very intentional. And it's a lesson we've learned a million times from anime. Hell yeah. But at the end of the day, you will always do better. You will always go further. You will always find deeper and more profound happiness when you have good companionship, good friends by your sides. So I think it's a really beautiful sentiment. You're not alone. No matter how alone you feel, you're not alone. And life is better if you strengthen those connections. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Those are great picks. I love it. I love those ideas. And they certainly resonate with me as well. A lot of good Leto insights throughout this book, for sure. And such a fun question. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to get up on our soapboxes, Matthew, and allowing us to geek out about some of these big ideas in the book. We're just a bunch of wilting leaves. Wilting leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. Well, next up, we don't have a question per se, but we just had to share this incredible idea that one of our patrons, Avian, in our Discord brought up in a recent conversation about God Emperor of Dune. In particular, Avian was talking about that scene where Duncan and Hui finally bang a couple of chapters ago, and then they're up and talking the next morning or whatever right after. And Avian points out that that scene is almost this reversal of cliché from classic cinema, right? The cliche being that you have like the distant, cool guy like smoking his cigar after banging the chick, and he's like laying there all cool in the bag. Yeah, Mm. I need another drag, babe. (laughs) And then on the flip side, like the cliche, of course, you have the the anxious woman who's like really attached to this person and emotional in that scene. Oh my God, is he gonna leave me? Is he gonna leave me? Et cetera, et cetera. With Duncan and Hui, Avian points out. That's flipped. So here's a little bit of what Avian wrote in our Discord discussion that we wanted to share. Quote, It always stood out to me how she's the one, leisurely lying there, hands and arms behind her head, and Duncan sits on the edge of the bed, probably clutching the sheet and covering his tits. (laughs) And I could never put my finger on why it stood out to me. It's a role reversal. Just like she's the one saying it's a one-night thing, and he's flinging himself onto her with an almost whine. I'm not saying that's the role we have or should have, just that it is the stereotypical portrayal of a scene like this, and it's only fairly recent, culturally speaking, that this changed and is changing. End quote. Hell yeah, Avian. Wow. Fuck yeah. High five. Sick. Love it. Yeah. What, what great insight from Avian, and... What a poignant way to read that scene. Because that feels spot on, this analysis. It is a role reversal. And yeah. it is Duncan in the stereotypical cliche feminine role, and we in the stereotypical cliche masculine role of being the cool, like 
Just a one-night stand, man. Give me another cigar. Also pragmatic. She's like, this is what needs to happen. Yes. You know, I've already decided. She's being decisive. He's going, no. Like, and again, to Avian's point, this isn't like what it should be. This is the stereotype of the woman being all emotional and the guy being like, I have to do what I have to do. And her going, why? Exactly reversed. Duncan, why do you have to go to him? And she's like, oh, because I have to, babe. <laughs> babe. Please, <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking is not as sexy if you cough. <laughs> Queen Ori, chain smoker. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> A side effect of her breeding and training. <laughs> Leto's super into it. He's like, she's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think within the book itself, too, it is so interesting to read this scene in that way. Because... Yeah, totally. As we've discussed throughout many book club episodes so far, Duncan is struggling to identify where he fits in all of this. He's been dragged 3,500 years into the future against his will, and he's a man out of time. He's trying to figure out, what is my role here? What is my purpose? Where do I fit in? What cliche is the cliche for me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, we know that Duncan historically identifies as this strong adult man who's known for his combat and military prowess and his abilities in the bedroom. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like masculine as masculine can be. And throughout the book, he's having everything about him questioned, right? By Moneo, by Leto, here by Hui. Are you really a strong man, Duncan? Because Moneo, the 70-year-old paper pusher, just decked your ass. Are (laughs) are you really the mature, intelligent military genius? Because you're acting like a child. You're throwing a tantrum. You know, all of these things are being thrown at Duncan as he's just overwhelmed by being so out of time. And to find himself in this situation where normally he would be the masculine guy dragging his cigar in the bed, instead to find himself on the flip side of that where Hui is playing that role and his masculinity comes into question or the masculinity that he knows and has always known is now suddenly thrown into question. Very interesting. It's just another way for Duncan to be thrown off axis in his experience in this book. Yeah, like we don't we don't see Duncan like sleeping with other women in in Dune. Like yeah. we know it happens, but we know. <laughs> but right. we don't like s- we know we know. But <laughs> I really don't imagine this is normal for him. And so, in addition to it's like okay, he gets the girl that he is so interested in, typical normal. But the next morning or like the moment after is not at all what he was expecting, and. Yeah. You just think about how that kind of rolls into every other experience in this book. You know, Duncan's an awful person in this book, but it does kind of lend itself to some sympathy toward his experience. Right. I loved this observation from Avian. I read it in Discord and immediately was just like, holy fucking shit. Like, (laughs) that's a brilliant way to read that scene. And it fits so neatly into the themes of the book itself into Duncan's emotional character arc in the book. But it's also interesting to examine it in the larger context of culture and how we as a culture have always 
represented these scenes and these roles and how it's been flipped here. Very cool. Avian, thank you so much. Thank this you is so why much. our Discord's fucking awesome. I yes. love just shameless plug here. It's so cool. I love when people share their their um their observations. And if you're in the Discord, you've already seen this message. But for those of you not, this is uh yeah. Just wanted to share that. We wanted so to thank you again, it. Avian. Super cool. Mm-hmm. And uh Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, let's take a breather after that deep dive into some God Emperor of Dune questions. But Don't go anywhere, folks, because after the break, we're going to talk about some expanded lore questions y'all had, and then we'll wrap up at the end of the episode with a very interesting off-topic question we got from a listener. So you'll want to stick around. We'll see you in a minute. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your break. Hope you covered your tits <laughs> blanket. <laughs> hope you examined words. I hope if you're a wilting leaf, you enjoyed floating on that autumn pond. We have an expanded lore question from Discord from Normal Senva. <laughs> oh my goodness. Quote, how do the Bene Gesserit maintain the integrity and truth of their memory and other memory. Mm. Memories are so easily muddled and altered over time and easily manipulated by shared observers. End quote. Whoa. That's a heavy hitter. Yeah. Oh my but gosh. first, we, we need to acknowledge just very quickly, 10 seconds. Normal yeah. Senva, incredible yeah. username. Spectacular. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And a great question. Australia Venport would be so proud, Normal. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's the quiznos cadillac <laughs> well to get into the answer to this question i mean genuinely the integrity and truth of Benny jesuit other memory yeah. and also just generally how trustworthy the Benny jesuit are yeah is a super interesting topic that we could honestly probably spin into a full episode totally but to answer your question kind of briefly within the context of this mailbag, let's quickly cover some basics. Mm-hmm. And first, it's worth remembering that other memory is not colloquial run-of-the-mill memory. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Frank gives us plenty of examples of living a past lives experience or having skills or languages from past ancestors. I took German in high school and remember three words. Leto, too, can speak in a hundred different languages. It's a little different, right? Yep. And or having straight up conversations with your other voices. Right. Frank doesn't give us any examples that I could find or remember of other memory being straight up wrong or changed or altered. Yeah. I'll also say on kind of a meta level, it's kind of important thematically for other memory to be accurate. Mm. It is certainly interesting to say like, what if 
other memory is muddled or is changed by observers or is, you know, those possibilities could actually lead to some very interesting stories and some interesting considerations on like, is Leto basing all this on bullshit other memories, right? Or are the Bene Gesserit like just feeding their own kind of propaganda machine? Yeah. Yeah. But that actually kind of like disarms most of the themes of Dune. <laughs> like that kind of right. disarms a lot of the most poignant points that the books make. Yeah. So basically, I think thematically it's important that we acknowledge other memory is sort of a consistent, infallible thing that like... Right. It is there. And uh, and if you were to go back and remember something, um, that memory is, is preserved in a way that like normal memory is not. Yeah. I think that's a really great point that you brought up because as much as we here on Gam Jabbar and our listeners in Discord love to like tear everything apart, not in a bad way, just like analyze deeply and question this and question that and what, what yeah. could this mean? How does this work? Yeah. We love the lore of this universe, but at the end of the day, there is quite a bit of suspension of belief that is asked of us as the readers by Frank for the purpose of telling his story, for the purpose of talking about the big ideas and the big themes. And so I think you're right. Other memory is one of those things where we are asked to just kind of believe it every time it comes up. Right. But it is always fun to examine it a little further. And so in very Gamjabar fashion, we took this a little further and wanted to question, okay, what if we were skeptical of other memory? And maybe not other memory itself, but the people using other memory, right? Right. Right. Because at the end of the day, the Bene Gesserit are still humans. And that comes with all the baggage that all humans come with and all the faults and biases that all humans come with. So there are reasons to be skeptical of the way other memories perhaps used, right? Because as you stated, other memory is not normal memory that you and I and other normal humans experience the thoughts we recall, the smells we remember, that sort of thing. Other memory in the books acts more like an archive or like a data bank of knowledge right? that the users can dip into and reference something. But then that calls into question, okay, the person that's wielding this other memory can be selective in the way they dip into it, right? They can choose which memories to consult. Right. They can also have their own biases in how to interpret that archive or that data bank of other memories. Right. And ultimately, that selectiveness, that bias, could lead to a quote-unquote incorrect use of that other memory. It could be used to reinforce something they already believe, for example. And maybe they pass over memories that could have been useful in that instance. So, you know, the books they never check out from the library of other memory aren't going to help them in that instance because they pass them over because of some human mistake or maybe they're simply in a rush you know right and you don't have time to reference every book in the nonfiction section i was gonna say i mean even from the first book i didn't take the time to go back and find the quote but i kind of got the impression and maybe it was said explicitly but after Jessica and Romalo kind of do that handoff and Jessica becomes an awakened reverend mother, yeah, she mentions like, man, it's going to take some time to go through all those experiences and that like she has to make the choice to go through that stuff. Right. I mean, when we meet these reverend mother characters, it's like 
have they chosen to go into that section? And you can give a modern person access to every bit of data on the internet. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're going to come away with a fair and balanced oh boy. take based on all of that available books and research. <laughs> yeah, that's up. true. Lock him up. <laughs> it's, it's so true. And look, the one way that a Benny Gesserit or anyone else using other memory can ensure that what they are looking into is accurate and has integrity would be to do the same thing that any good researcher or journalist already knows, right? Fact check and cross-reference multiple sources, understand the context, account for any bias or outside influence, and get the bigger picture of it all, right? Get get the holistic near truth of it all. Right. And I think this is where perhaps other memory does have a bit of an edge because the numbers ultimately matter here. One memory of an event or one recollection of an event, right? I'm a journalist. I interviewed you about an event that happened in Kansas City. That's the only data point I have to go off of what you remember of it. The Bene Gesserit have literally thousands of memories of that amazing rave in Kansas City that night. And so they can cross-reference thousands and thousands of potential memories from a single event to ensure greater accuracy and to ensure that they have a bigger picture of that memory. I feel like there would just be more data points to work off of, right? You Mm. wouldn't just be referencing one person's memory of one thing. You could potentially reference other people who talked to that person or other people who saw the news of that event. You know, you could could stitch together uh, other things uh, that aren't necessarily the attendees of that rave, but are, right, 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 are, right. are the greater context of that rave. I don't know why rave is the example I'm going with. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to your point, it's like, so you have the person who was at the rave. Yeah. And then you have the, the people who talked about that rave for years and articles that were written about it. Yes. And then you have a hundred years later, what did that rave mean in the context of EDM exactly. music and like, the evolution of it, and you have every one of those perspectives as time shifts and changes versus if I went into the library right now and I read a book about something that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I would have one particular set of perspectives compared to 100 years from now or 20 years ago, that sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I get you're absolutely correct. I guess a better way to say what I'm saying is you have not only the primary source, but you have the secondary, tertiary, whatever comes after that. You have all of these sources that follow thereafter to refer back right. to an event or and to verify a quote-unquote other memory that you're referencing in the archives. So I think that does help the Bene Gesserit be more accurate with it. But as we've stated, does every Bene Gesserit like, do that level of rigorous fact-checking every single source down the line? Probably not, you know? I'm sure there are many instances of a Bene Gesserit just, like, very quickly checking one source and believing it and running with it. So, at the end of the day, I think as powerful a tool as other memory can be, and as much as we are told as the reader to believe it is infallible, the people using it are ultimately still human. And a tool is only as good as the people who use it. Yeah, it seems very clear to me that characters like Mohayim are not doing that like I should look to the past to challenge myself and be a more well-rounded person. Right. She's like, 
that child is abomination and there's no and it's like okay but you can think back and see no one trying to find a fucking solution for this right clearly they carry that bias that prejudice yeah into their observation of other memories so to your point right a flawed application of a tool is going to yield flawed results absolutely yeah that's such a great point about abomination but again, we, we could go on about this forever. This is like a full episode's worth of a discussion because I had other stuff in the script that I was like, ah, this is going to get us down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, but now I'm yeah. wondering, like, are there like Benny Gesserit incels that like only look at other memories to reinforce their shitty beliefs and then they like are radicalized by their other memory algorithms or whatever, you know? Like, yeah, guaranteed. Are they red pilled by their own fucking other memories? <laughs> it's wild because if you start thinking of other yeah. memory as the internet, as like this archive of data yeah yeah yeah. it it raises so many questions about like misinformation disinformation and how that information is actually applied because we see it in real time in our reality now in 2023 and how messy that is and, and i can't imagine how that would be for the benny jesuit yep but that that perhaps is a larger conversation for another time uh this really got our wheel spinning so thank you so much for the great question here normal senua yeah. Incredible name, incredible question. <laughs> yeah. And you're not normal. You're extraordinary. Extraordinary. You're an extraordinary Senva. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, after that banger of a question, let's look at the next one. This is a Discord message from Ben. Yes. Nice. Nice username, Ben. Ben writes, quote, after Denis Villeneuve releases his adaptation of Messiah, who do you think would be a good writer-director slash team to take over the franchise and deliver adaptations of children of dune and god emperor of dune mm. end quote ben 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 and i feel like abu i've seen tweets from you about yes. this yes <laughs> so i'll let you go first this is very top of mind recently yeah yeah uh okay ben all right ben if that's your real name <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm coming at this really aggressively. Thank you for the great question, Ben. We get this question all the time, actually. We get tweets about it. We get emails about ben it. Ben is the B in HBO. <laughs> yeah, he's the B in HBO. It's another exec. <laughs> Yo, Ben and yeah. Drew are after us with these blank checks. Okay, so we get this question all the time. Basically, a dozen different variations of, hey, guys, what do you think could, should, would, will, blah, 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 happen after Denny completes his trilogy, right? Denny has committed yeah. to getting through Dune Messiah, his trilogy, but after that, he's basically done, for now at least. He right. has said that he has no intentions to go further. And people, of course, of course, Dune fans want more. And I've kind of been holding back on this. I've kind of tweeted some things about it in response to folks, but I was like, yeah, I don't know, like, this is kind of a scorching hot take. And not something that I imagine a lot of Dune fans will want to hear. But here's my belief on this. I don't think we should get adaptations of Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune. And certainly not Oh my God, the he latter hates books. Dune. I, he hates there it is. Dune. Boo, you finally caught me. He hates Dune. <laughs> Three years and a hundred and fucking 80 episodes in, you caught me in the lie. I actually That's despise That's a lot. You committed Dune. to the bit. That's impressive. <laughs> Really committed to this character. Of yeah, liking true, true long-term thinking, as Leto <laughs> would say. Yeah, so that is my hot take. I don't think we should get adaptations of Children and God Emperor of Dune. I also say this with full knowledge that, yes, the Sci-Fi Channel did a pretty decent adaptation of Children of Dune 
and Messiah. They kind of combined them together. We, on this very podcast, discussed it in three deep dive episodes about that miniseries. Mm-hmm. And my conclusion, as I stated in our discussions, was they still fucking fumbled the ball at the end. It still didn't live up to Children of Dune, the book, and the adaptation botched it in the end, in my opinion. And I stated this in the deep dive episodes as well. I just don't think parts of Children of Dune adapt well. And I certainly don't think God Emperor of Dune adapts well. In fact, I would go so far as to say God Emperor of Dune is unfilmable without butchering it to the point of it not being God Emperor of Dune anymore. You'd have to approach it from such a dramatically different way Hmm. that it would hardly be the original text of Frank's book. Of course, adaptations require change. You'll never do a one-to-one adaptation of a book to screen. But I think God Emperor of Dune would require such change that it would dramatically change the book in many ways. In irredeemable ways, probably. And part of the reason I think that is, I believe the entire premise of God Emperor of Dune is quite impossible to sell to the mainstream public. Big, gross, wormy man talks about politics and religion and military at you for four hours is not a great sales pitch. Right. I think the density of that material, of those Leto TED Talks, don't translate well to the silver screen, right? We have whole chapters and hundreds of pages for Leto to ramble on about these things. In a film, especially in a modern film with attention spans being what they are, you have 10 minutes to talk about the master-servant relationship that all religious institutions create, you know? You're going to get into that in a 10-minute scene with Moneo on the screen? You know, I I just don't buy it. It's too dense. Right. And ultimately, even stepping out of the story itself— I think realistically, like capitalism ruins everything and it would ruin Dune by then. If we ever got to the point where we're making God Emperor of Dune the adaptation, Dune is a multi-gazillion dollar franchise. And I promise you, Hollywood execs would insist on butchering the shit out of it because it's such a weird book and you don't take a risk on a multi-billion dollar franchise at that point in its life cycle. Hmm. So those are like some strong feelings I have about God Emperor just not being adaptable in any way. I think in in a larger sense, just to wrap up my rambling here, in a larger sense, I do strongly believe that it is okay for stories to stay in their original me- medium. It is okay for things to end, actually. Like, we've all seen the recent reports of the MCU spiraling and panicking after a, a decade plus of dominating pop culture. It's now being stretched too thin. We've also all seen what happens to TV shows that just get renewed endlessly forever. Right? Right, right. House of Cards was a banger of a two season show because they only wrote two fucking seasons. They wanted it to end after that. And because it was such a big hit, Netflix renewed it and it went on to just like shit itself over the next couple of seasons. And that happens to so many popular shows. I think like just like dragging it on further is to its detriment. And it's okay for some of Frank's work to just stay in its original medium. That's where it worked best. And that's where it resonated the most. So that's where I'll wrap up my big thought. I didn't really answer (laughs) Ben's question at all here. I just used it as a, as an excuse to get up on my soapbox and rant a little bit about that. But (laughs) that's my thought. Sure. Yeah. I will say Leo is about to speak and I look, peeked at Leo's notes Mm. and I immediately was like, fuck, I am, I'm changing my mind already because he had such great picks (laughs) for who should do it. 
and you I'm spoiling your answer a little bit, but you said that Guillermo del Toro should direct. And damn it, you know, I agree. If in whatever reality God Emperor of Dune does get adapted, I think Guillermo's the one to do it. He made that one movie about a fish man and won a fucking Oscar for it. So maybe he could strike gold twice and yeah. do it with a worm god. <laughs> yeah. So so to get into my answer, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've made a few very good points, and I agree. I think Denis wants to end at Messiah, partially because it's the end of Paul's story, partially because he doesn't want to get caught up in a franchise for fucking ever, and he doesn't want his career defined by Dune. And Absolutely. You know, there's all these reasons why Denis wouldn't continue. Yep. And I think we all agree that it's good. I also agree that God Emperor of Dune in particular would be a terrible movie. I think God <laughs> Emperor of Dune is the sort of thing that would need to be a very carefully paced uh, miniseries. And I think the same thing, Children of Dune has enough action and shit in it that you yeah. could pretty faithfully make it like a three hour thing, I think. But even so, that feels like a rush for... Like if you wanted to give Faradin his proper time, if you wanted to give Winsissia and Tykenik his proper time, you know, if you wanted to give these characters space to breathe, yeah. a miniseries also would be the way to do it. I imagined Guillermo del Toro, uh, for obvious reasons, the dude's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like from Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, even Troll Hunters, the like animated Netflix cartoon is fucking awesome. And nice. he was, I think he was direct, either directed that or was like one of the producers. Yeah. So. Hellboy. Hellboy. Also so fucking awesome. He's just, he's, he's amazing. And actually, one of the things that came to mind very recently was Pinocchio. Mm. Was so dark and weird and twisted. So I was like, I think Guillermo del Toro has the kind of crazy imagination to really approach this in a way that could sell it. Yeah. I think Guillermo del Toro could do it. And mm -hmm. I think he would direct it. I think he would probably be in charge of writing the screenplay as well. He had help from Patrick McHale in writing the Pinocchio screenplay. Okay. And I like Patrick McHale as well because I can almost guarantee that y'all don't know Patrick McHale's name. But if you've heard of Adventure Time, if you've heard of Over the Garden Wall, if you've heard of Gravity Falls... Patrick McHale is young, but has a crazy fucking track record. Over the Garden Walls is a masterpiece, is like unbelievably good mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so unique and so twisted and so weird and such a hard sell as well. So the fact that they've worked together before, the fact that they worked together to adapt something like Pinocchio. And then I was thinking about the form of the movie either being, you know, sandy, dusty, live action with crazy prosthetics and especially that kind of like dark horror vibe of Pan's Labyrinth I think yeah. could be really good Yeah, to like really sell you on Duncan's feeling of this is not right. There's no way this is right as the like looming like God Emperor like folds into view and it's like yeah. hello Duncan. Oh I can picture those scenes in the crypt in my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cinematically I agree like if you're gonna do it the tone has to be very yeah. horror. Because it's, it's a scary-ass book. So maybe I'm kind of selling myself now talking about it. I'm like, maybe live action with those kind Ooh, of prosthetics yeah, yeah, and yeah. things. Um, but I think it could also, 
could be very interesting in a Kubo two strings style, like stop motion, which I know Del Toro is like very familiar with. Yeah. And that was a beautiful movie for sure. What a beautiful movie. And had like a great sense of scale and a great epic kind of adventure quality to it. I don't know. A lot of thoughts. I I, I do think that I'm kind of selling myself though on like a Pan's (laughs) Labyrinth style realism with that kind of dark fantasy horror quality. Hmm. Or, yeah. you know You're what? Me Fuck too. it. Miyazaki. Hey, Miyazaki. there we go. Just bring him out of retirement a seventh time. Do it. The master. You know, technically, hey, House Moving Castle is an adaptation of a novel. Right. So he's done that before. Right. Fuck it. Anime. Anime. <laughs> Anime is good. For, whoever's... The, the, Mappa. Get Mappa, who's yes. doing, like, Jujutsu Kaisen. Right. They'll do it. You, you can do anything in They're anime. They're great with, like, dark horror shit. Right. Yeah. Anime is the solution to every problem. I saw a trailer for an anime about a person or something or another that becomes a vending machine. You know, if they yeah. can sell that, they can sell a godworm. You know, totally. Yeah, one of my favorite anime is a is a bookshop keeper who's also a skeleton. Yeah, it's fine. It's great. Love it. <laughs> anyway, broadly, we're in agreement. I I think the idea of like unfilmable is a more of an issue of we haven't been convinced that someone has the integrity to, to handle it well. Yeah. Because we've seen so many bad adaptations and we've seen so many things drawn on longer than they should be. But with animated shows like The Midnight Gospel, with like the stuff that Don Hertzfeld does, with even more classically like the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the film adaptation, which got the book so right, but by changing a lot to be very true to the book yeah, in a different medium was brilliant because I think they're both masterpieces, but they're very different. So it's like, I I just believe that there's a way to do it. But I think the way to do it would be more of like the miniseries strategy of you've got eight hour-long episodes that explore, has some of the philosophy, some of the talking but then if we look back on God Emperor of Dune, there's like the bombing at the embassy and the fish right. speakers and him rushing out to fight them all. Right. There's the procession where the, the face dancers are as all of Duncan. And like there are some great that naked donkey. We need that on screen. Yeah. Full nudity. Just that big old schlong <laughs> flopping around. We need Hang it. Hang dong. <laughs> <Just> yeah. <laughs> we need it. Uh, he said a little too excitedly. But generally there's this. I think there is enough in God Emperor of Dune. I think there's enough in Children uh, Children of Dune that you could make a very compelling piece of like miniseries television, shaving away some of the philosophy and some of the talking. And I think you could still be very true to it all. Yeah. But it would take someone like Guillermo del Toro. And to your point, it would take, you know, Sony Pictures, whoever's bankrolling it. They were like, right. we think you should. And you'd be like, shut the fuck back. up. Right. Shut the fuck up. The, right. get, get out. Yeah. Like, get out of here. Like a we full, on, this. full on, like, blank check situation where, like, you do it. Yeah. We trust you, the master craftsman, to tell the story. It can be as weird and wacky as it needs we're to gonna be. We're going to see it on opening night. Right. We're not, <laughs> like, right. we're going to pay for it. Yeah. Good luck. So here's yeah. the sales pitch to our patrons. Yeah. Make us billionaires, right? <laughs> And then we, yeah. in the future, just bankroll the best artists we know yeah. to create the best, weirdest, wackiest Dune stuff we know. No strings attached. We just hand out blank checks to people and ma- let them make the coolest shit they want. I'm okay with this legacy. Yeah. 
I, I like this. So patrons yeah. help us get there, you know? <laughs> Think about it. Think about Weird. it. Yeah. $2 a month. <laughs> it's the first, uh, first step toward us being billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And absolutely, I, you know, I agree with you. Like, you, you have a much more tempered and realistic take on this. Um, obviously, my, mine's a bit more spicy and a bit more cynical about it all, right? Like, I, I, I mean, it's I'm easy because I like Dune and you clearly too. hate it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's easy, right? We're just leaning into <laughs> our beliefs. But I agree. Like, ultimately, I maybe unfilmable was the wrong way to phrase that. I, I think the book itself, as it exists, is unfilmable, right? To try and adapt it one for one. Hmm. I think something that's inspired by the story or takes elements of the story but perhaps in a different direction, more horror-focused or focused entirely on Siona as the main character, that sort of thing, yeah. is certainly doable and can be done well and can still incorporate many of the same themes. I just don't think, like, in the way that Denny is very much doing his best to honor the first book. Sure, yeah. And Messiah in, like, a very one-to-one, like, the scenes are almost in the same exact order as they are in the book. I think that's not necessarily possible with God Emperor. So here's a another thing that that, that came to me as you were talking. Mm-hmm. We think about like Lord of the Rings, that trilogy, yeah, as like yeah, 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 one of the best book adaptations yeah. ever. Yeah, and you go back yeah. and you read the book, and you're like, I'm sorry, 13 pages of italicized elf song. Love it. What the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, like, and again, if you love Lord of the Rings, great, but like the books have a bunch of bullshit that the Absolutely. that Peter Jackson cut out. Great point. And yep. those movies run 12 hours. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can watch those movies for almost a full calendar day. And I don't think that that works with today's attention span. So again, many series. But if we use that as like the infrastructure or like the scaffolding, I think you can take something that is as dense and crazy as like... I don't know. So totally. that, that's totally. who, yeah. Peter and, and I think we're driving at the same point. Like I would, <laughs> yeah. I, I would also counter that as a Tolkien nerd, Lord of the Rings is perhaps Tolkien's most straightforward like hero's journey work. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there's a reason an adaptation of like the Silmarillion doesn't exist <laughs> because right. that is a fucking tome of a book. Oh. But again, to the point I think we're driving at, you can take elements of it and use it as the scaffolding to tell a really beautiful story in that universe that still right. honors right. the original text right there there's for my tolkien nerds out there like the story of baron baron and luthien is beautiful and it's one of the most heartfelt stories in the silmarillion you could certainly adapt that right uh, but you could not adapt the Silmarillion cover to cover as it is written, because it is... Isn't it like an encyclopedia? Like, it is basically it an encyclopedia book? of Lord of the Rings history, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and it, it, it's you can pick the pick parts from it, but you could not put the whole thing on screen um, in any sensible way. Uh, the origin of the gods, the origin of the trees, blah, blah, blah. I'm getting too Tolkien nerdy here. We could clearly go on about this forever, but um, <laughs> I, I really loved your insight, Leo. And again, as you were talking, I was like, damn, I'm being sold on this, aren't I, in real time? Uh, <laughs> of this like Pan's Labyrinth, vibey, God Emperor of Dune, Guillermo del Toro movie. But alas, we'll have to wait and see. It may or may not happen in our lifetimes, but I, I certainly hope to be proven wrong. I hope I eat my own words yeah. and that someone makes an absolute masterpiece of an adaptation of Children of Dune and God Emperor. That would be beautiful. Sorry, I folks. hope I get to eat my words someday. 
I convinced Sabu <laughs> to like Dune again. There we go. <laughs> We're back, baby. We're back. Thanks for baby. the great question, Ben, yeah. and uh, thanks for kind of being the spokesman for a lot of our listeners. I think a lot of folks have asked us to talk about this, so we figured now was the time. Well, we are going to wrap up now on an off-topic question. Yes, and this is this is a big topic, but it's worth talking about. This is a doozy. It's a doozy, and the doozy is brought to you by Dave Treese. This is an email that we got. Dave wrote, quote, this subject is a little off topic. Dave, I already said that. You don't need to reiterate. But it's something <laughs> I've wondered about since recently seeing a variety of AI visual renditions of Dune-themed subject matter online. I'm interested in Leo. I'll just end it there. Interested in you too, Dave. <laughs> no, no. Dave wrote, I'm interested Already. in Leo. Roll credits. As a degree-holding art guy, it's working out great. Thanks for asking, mm. Dave. Mm -hmm. Doing his take on the AI art trend developing and evolving so quickly and its impact on visual art specifically. I'm also interested in Abu's take as a not-art degree guy <laughs> on the potential cultural impact of AI art <laughs> produced as advertising, propaganda, and as merch unto its own commercial self, end quote. Wow. So I think... Consider this can of worms opened, motherfucker. <laughs> we have had two HBO executives anonymously write into us, and then we also have someone asking us to solve AI. Yeah. Uh, I think we're up to the job. We're up to it. Well, do you want to start, Abu? Should I? I don't know. What do you think? You know what? My answer piggybacks off of yours. Yeah. So I'd love for you to kick us okay. off here because you have some really great thoughts and then I piggyback off of it on mine. Well, I do have a degree after all. I'm speaking from a place <laughs> of infinite study. Uh, yes. A lot of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> so, yeah, talking about AI art and the way that this is going to impact visual art specifically how it's developing and evolving so quickly i think the world of paid art of you know compensated art is going to be confronted with the same sorts of issues that like mechanical automation posed for people throughout every industry over the last hundreds of years right for example do you want an anime version of your fursona if you're a furry person uh-huh. Cool. Done. Yeah, that you don't have to pay that, like, Twitter artist, you know, 150 bucks for them to draw you that thing. You can now just go to the website and push a button and you're good, right? Right. And artists who are currently making money and paying their bills through doing those sorts of commissioned work are going to have to change. They're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. Their lives are going to have to change. That means that, like executives and people at the top who normally do have to like pay artists to make their grand visions come to life they save a lot of money now because this kind of asset and this is also going to be true for game assets recently i've learned how to make game assets over the last couple of years it takes a lot of time yeah. to make them well there are models right now ai models being developed where you could say coffee mug and it just gives you a coffee mug object that you can then plug into your game oh wow and like that's amazing that's so much faster than even a very skilled game artist making that coffee mug so we're talking about saving money and being a lot more efficient you don't have to hand copy your latin books anymore you can push a button and you have 10,000 copies of that book printed 
right? Right. So we have saved money. Now, in an ideal world, we enter into this like golden age of media and wealth, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the billionaires don't become more rich. And in fact, instead of becoming more rich and more of billionaires, we just like establish a UBI or something, right? Like a universal basic income. And then everyone, just because we're all so wealthy now, because no one's spending money trying to fucking make coffee mugs for their video games. Yeah. We can all get that, you know, $1,000 a month check just by being here. And then making art doesn't have to be tied to paying to like rent a place, right? Like you don't have to trade years of your life just to fucking live. That's an ideal world. I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen for so many reasons. (laughs) You've painted a beautiful picture. (laughs) Realistically, though, I think the pendulum is going to swing the way that it did with CGI movies, right? Like Toy Story blew everyone's minds. Oh, my God. An animated movie, but you didn't draw anything? It's all math? Whoa, cool. Crazy. Crazy. And as we did with like Toy Story, we get so many movies that look kind of like it, that do kind of what it did. We have so many fucking, like that awful Pinocchio movie, right? The Not the Guillermo del Toro one, but the one where he's like, uh-huh. Father, I'm going to be free! Like that. Anyway, <laughs> point is, we're going to have a lot of like crummy shit. But then I think the pendulum swings back. Princess and the Frog and Ponyo were both advertised as we have returned to hand drawing because audiences were like, we want more hand-drawn animation. Like, we miss hand-drawn animation. Yeah. So I think the pendulum swings. Right. And I think that's always going to be the way that these things work. Now, you know, the world of AI art begins to balloon. We're going to have so much AI-generated shit all over the place. And that's fine. But I want to draw your attention to something like Arcane. Ugh. Arcane. Arcane is a fucking masterpiece. Yes. And it looks unreal. It looks unbelievable. And it does not look unbelievable because it was emulating some existing data set. It was artists making bold choices that then resulted in this show, right? Yep. That is always going to have a value. Creative vision, artists creating that creative vision again i think the world of like commercial art and making a living by being an artist that might be jeopardized and that might be going away pretty soon but the world of like what visual the world of visual art may be flooded with ai art but there will always be things like arcane that says we're using functionally the same fucking technology as shrek yeah but it looks so much better. Yeah. And part of that's just having uh, the creative vision, having that kind of inspiration. Yeah. Your dig at Shrek there just cost us all of our Gen Z listeners, by the way. So. <laughs> Some. <laughs> Body wants to. Yeah. It's. Listen, I love Shrek. The Shrek's fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I watched it on TikTok the other day. It was Shrek, but it gets 5% faster every time Shrek takes a step. Oh my and God. It's three and a half minutes long. And it's weird because, like, the first minute and a half is basically just you're watching Shrek. And then there's a few scenes back to back of him walking around. And it just becomes more and more unintelligible. It's <laughs> That's great, incredible. Delightful. Uh, but I, I know I love Shrek. I think Shrek's a phenomenal movie. But yeah. anyway, I will wrap up by kind of returning to my well decorated soapbox, my colorful, beautiful soapbox. Yes. Uh, because 
I mentioned earlier, I really do think that art resonates because you inject into art your perspective and your experience as a human. And there is, of course, and will always be a market for art that just looks nice. And people will go to the, you know, and that's something that AI can do quite well. They can look at Michelangelo, they can look at, you know, Monet, and AI art can take a beautiful painting and do it in the style of Monet. And that's kind of a new thing that people can look at and go, wow, this is really beautiful. I like this. There will always be that. That's fine. The world of visual art and the world of art in general is its most impactful for us when you're in that that gallery space and you see that painting and you go, oh, shit. Oh, my God. This is... Yeah. Like, why do I have all of these feelings? And you have all of those feelings because the artist had a lot of those feelings and expressed them in a way that defies language. And that's like where art is at its pinnacle. And I think that is irreplaceable because there are as many perspectives on the planet as humans. And even if AI evolves to the point of having its own perspectives, which is possible in sort of a weird dystopian way, there will still be individual human perspectives that react to AI being a thing and react to what does it mean to be human if these AI things are making art and that feeling, how amorphous and hard to put into words as it is, can be the foundation of new artwork that couldn't have existed before. Right. So I also take heart in knowing like there are woodblock painters today and there are uh, marble sculptors today. Yeah. Some of them have TikTok accounts. They're great. <laughs> so I think that there's a core of artistry that will always be present because the heart of it is sharing your perspective and people will never lose the human perspective because we're humans and that's what we do. Yeah. So I'm not worried about art. I do think that if you are out there and you are like a uh, an entry level programmer, if you are a commissioned musician, a commissioned visual artist, there's a lot of work that's going to just disappear. And that sucks. Yeah. Society will change. And the question is, do we greet it in its new form and help to shape it in a way that makes a better experience for humans? Or do we try to cling to the past? And I think I think we get to make that choice individually, that we have agency in all of this. Anyway, that's my... I ended up on like a lateral soapbox, a different soap. It's fine. Uh, Abu, what about you? Uh, yeah. Do you think we're, we're all fucking doomed? You don't have an art degree. <laughs> Give um, your I, perspective. Uh, right. <laughs> I, have, I don't have any art degree. And um, yeah, I, I agree with a lot, a lot of what you said. That's kind of why I wanted you to go first, because you already covered a lot of my thoughts. I generally think that in response to Dave's question, I think ultimately there is something about true human imagination that no algorithm, no matter how sophisticated it may be or it may become, just can't replicate. It can certainly mimic it really, really well. Right. And it can regurgitate the art that's already out there. Right. It's already literally doing that as we speak. But can it imagine something that's truly new? Or can it express something indescribable? The idea of being a wilting leaf in autumn on a calm pond or whatever, you know, like <laughs> yeah. AI can't do that. A human can do that. And I think this is even relevant to some of what Leto has said in this very book. He said to Lucy all in an early chapter, quote, 
Is automation synonymous with conscious intelligence? Intelligence creates. That means you must deal with responses never before imagined. You must confront the new. End quote. Hell yeah. What a good quote. That's awesome. And I simply don't see AI confronting the new, right? I don't see AI imagining responses that have never been imagined. It can come close to making you think it's human, but all it's doing is scouring infinite data and regurgitating, processing, mashing it up into something that frankly already exists. And so those are sort of my thoughts on that, philosophical thoughts on like the art side of it, right? What happens to art because of AI? I think humanity and true human imagination will never be replicated in the sense that new things will be invented. I think the horizons of new are still human. On the flip side of that question, Dave also asked about sort of the commercial and cultural impact of AI. And I think that is a different beast altogether. And you sort of hinted at this as well. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the reality is, is that art doesn't exist in a vacuum. We live in a global capitalist society and the commodification of art is a significant factor in its social impact. And AI is going to change that landscape significantly. And to some extent, if you are an artist, you're probably already feeling the early waves of that change. But it kind of goes back to an idea we talked about earlier with other memory being a tool. Like any other human tool, I think how we use artificial intelligence is going to dictate so much of how it impacts us culturally and commercially. I think in the right hands, in that beautiful utopian future that you painted for us, in the right hands, AI will help artists and storytellers imagine and create things that we've never seen before, that have never been possible before. Yeah, totally. In the wrong hands, we're going to drown ourselves in copy-pasted shovelware bullshit that is meant to deceive or influence or distort reality or is meant to sell us something. And we've already seen a lot of that happen as well. Such a good point. Yeah. That And, and again, the way that I use ChatGPT is learning how to do a craft myself. Right. You can use AI tools to replicate teaching methods to bring people up to speed on new skills and crafts so that yes. they are better equipped as humans to tell human stories. Hell yeah. It's so powerful and beautiful in its own way. But it's how you apply it. Right. Totally. Right. Because inevitably, we're human, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, <laughs> there's vast swaths of us that are... <laughs> I keep trying not to be, but damn it, every morning I wake up, not again! Fuck! Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that humanity is messy. As much good as we do, we also do terrible. And we also are prone to, you know, stupidity, greediness, all of those things. And we will see AI art and AI affect everything from commerce to political discourse. Again, we're already seeing these things, right? Yeah. And it will only become more and more problematic as these tools become more and more sophisticated. You can already... Did you see that one fucking AI thing where you can talk to a celebrity? Like, I think Kendall Jenner hmm. gave her voice to it. And you can, like, call this number and have a conversation with Kendall Jenner, an AI voice. AI thing of her voice so that Kendall Jenner can like be your I'm friend. I'm so uninterested in that. Right. Cool. What a shitty Tamagotchi. Like I'm not interested even remotely. Right. And right. actually kind of 
to your point in all this, there's also as awful as humans are, there's also lots of awful things, right? People getting called with the voice of their kid going, mom, I'm in a bad place. Help me out. I need like $200 and I don't have access to it. I need to send it here. And people have already been scammed using these AI tools. Absolutely. Scams. And also, you think about fucking Congress asking the CEO of TikTok, is my Wi-Fi network something that... On the Tic Tacs? On the Tic Tacs. And I'm like, there's no fucking hope for us because... These are the people who are going to see uh, or a video recording of a very convincing Joe Biden spitting the full version of Eminem's rap god and go, <laughs> he's been faking it this whole, just completely convinced. Yeah. Because they're, they're just not technologically literate yeah. enough yeah, yeah, yeah. to be skeptical in the right ways. So I think, and I, I say this because I think there's a lot of maybe hesitance to lean into AI things. But I want to emphasize one of the things that we can all do in in our lives is we can be advocates for skepticism around what can be created by artificial intelligence, which also takes being up to date with what can be. Like, it is so tempting to say, what a weird new technology that is not relevant to my life. But you could receive a scam call that is empowered by technology, like by this technology. So I encourage every listener to be aware of what is possible with AI and tell your friends and family so that all of us are, are maybe on a higher level of like baseline literacy around these tools so that you and the people you love don't fall prey to fake news, to like, artificially you know i've already seen people share fucking videos on facebook of oh my god look at this jenga tower how do how was it built and it's like it it wasn't why are you sharing this this yeah. is a cgi video like yeah it's just so anyway that's my call to action we can each of us make a very real impact in all of our loved ones lives absolutely absolutely and look here's what i'll say about that as well i agree but it is also not on us as the individuals to police AI. True. Much yeah. like it is not on us to recycle everything and save the planet when that corporation has damaged the planet more than I could in 10 lifetimes, you know? Right, right. It is on us to collectively, in our societies and within our governments, create these standards and regulations and boundaries, right? And this knowledge and this education around these things. Yeah. I always feel crazy sometimes because I had a really, clearly, uh, when I think back, I had a really good grade school education at like a really good grade school in a very wealthy public school district. And I remember taking classes where they were like, be careful of the internet, you little children. Okay, everyone's lying. And you have to fact check everything you look on the internet. Like we were told like not to use Google mm. and, and to only search things on like Britannica and, and like online encyclopedias and never go to websites that weren't like ended that didn't end in like dot org because they weren't verified or like dot gov because those are true government sites. We were taught like how to fact check shit on the internet because it so much of it is wrong. And this was like in the early two thousands when I was in grade school, you know, like before fucking the internet is what it is today. Yeah, wow. And I like I run into so many people now as a grown up that just don't do these basic things of like I don't know maybe I'll fact check this thing that I found on so and so so dot com and 
Yeah. Because like yeah. .com is commercial. It's in the fucking name, .com. And, and like, yeah. I was taught those things and then I didn't get an art degree, but I did get a journalism <laughs> degree. And I was taught once again to be very skeptical of not only the things I read online, but of the things people told me to my face and to fact check and then triple check and then cross reference and then yeah. ask the right question to make sure that I got that right. Like that level of skepticism and that level of education that I was given is so valuable to me now. Totally. And I'm not saying yeah. I'm some like infallible internet God who's never been tricked, you know? Yeah, you don't like but, Dune. That, you're, that's a huge problem. <laughs> But I, I feel like like that level of education starting in grade school for all of our kids yeah, is yeah. absolutely necessary in the world we live in today and will only become more necessary as AI makes more and more of what we see online distorted and unreal in many ways. And, and that sort of like online literacy, I strongly feel is like an educational course that has to be in every program, literally fucking starting from the moment kids have access to a computer in grade school. Mm. And I feel like I was given that. I don't know like what magical schools I went to, but I feel like I was given a very healthy skepticism of everything online. And I was told to like always dig deeper and cross-reference and never believe anything I read online until I can find it in other places or more reliable places. All of that is to say, I, th I think standards, regulations, education, we as a society need to figure those out. Both on, on like a governmental legal level with laws, but also on a societal level with what we accept as normal with artificial intelligence and what standards we impress upon companies and also impress upon each other. I, I can't help but think of like the concept of a movie theater, right? Like when we all go to a movie theater and eat our popcorn and our nachos, I like to think nobody is sitting there thinking what I'm watching on the screen is reality. <laughs> All of this is real. Oh my god. There are dinosaurs in New York? <laughs> right. Avatar, Pandora. <laughs> and of course you have your outliers. Like I'm not going to speak for all of humanity, but I like to think a healthy, vast majority of us go to a movie and we've all sort of socially agreed, this is a story and this is fake. I am going for entertainment and emotional connection. No matter how convincing the visual effects might get, right? Visual effects are so real these days. But at the end of the day, we can all be like, okay, yeah, Godzilla, not real, no matter how real he looks on that screen. <laughs> yeah. And that that's sort of like the social aspect of movies. On the flip side of that, we have actual fucking laws that will like regulate movie rating for children. You know, you have to be this old to watch this movie. You have to be, or like this movie contains this content. And so thus it, it gets this rating or this limited release, whatever that may be. Like there are laws that we abide by. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. But they exist. And I think their very existence is a step in the right direction to at least try. Yeah. I think AI is a um, sort of the fucking Wild West, the, the next right. horizon of, of this human experiment. And we've already named a number of things that are scary about it. But I think we've also tried to balance it out with how, how it can expand our horizons to be more human as well, to be more ourselves and to express more of ourselves in more ways that we've never imagined before. And all of that just comes back to how we, how delicately we, we handle it, how much we educate ourselves and each other about it, and how many sort of guardrails against the worst human instincts we put up around artificial intelligence. And I strongly believe we have to do all of those things. Am I optimistic we will? That's a different story. But that, that's just this, <laughs> perhaps the cynic in me. Uh, I, I am optimistic that we will see some incredible things from AI in every sense of the word. Yeah.
and I think you're right. Like legislation's important and we're going to need, we're going to need that kind of protection. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll leave it there again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Dave. <laughs> Dave Treese, you spun us down a rabbit hole, but Indeed. listen, you said, and I quote, I'm interested in Leo end quote. So can't yeah. be too bad of a guy. Can't be too bad. Thank uh, you, Dave. <laughs> And that's also where we're going to wrap up the episode. So right. before we leave, we've got some uh, housekeeping, some outro housekeeping to take care of. So before we let you go, hey, you want to support what we do here? Here's an idea. Oh my gosh, become a patron. Mm. Patreon.com forward slash Gamjabar. <laughs> Whoa, what a website. If you haven't seen it, type that into your little browser there yeah, and uh, check it out. Best way to support us by far. You'll get ad-free episodes, weekly blooper clips, mm-hmm. and an invite to the Discord server where people like Avian are dropping hot analysis takes on yeah. the books that we're reading together. So yeah. if you want in on those sweet conversations, patreon.com slash gamjabar. That's right, folks. And another great way to support us is to get yourself some Dune-themed merch for the patrons who are listening to this mailbag in November 2023, y'all, holiday season around the corner. Gamjabarshop.com, get your loved ones something nice. We got art, apparel, mugs, a tote bag, so much more. They don't have to be fans of Dune. You can explain it to them. You can send them our podcast. Get them that (laughs) Dune-themed merch for the holidays. And look, if you're listening to this months down the line, I don't know, somebody's birthday's probably coming up. Get them something nice. (laughs) Gamjabarshop.com is where you can support us and get yourself something Dune-themed and cute. And none of it is AI generated. It is real human artists doing real human art. There you go. Finally, we love to hear from you. So email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us your thoughts, your comments, your concerns, your questions. Again, if you're a public friend, if you're not a Patreon friend, you're hearing this message in, I don't know, 2027 or something. Uh, <laughs> you will. You can send us questions. We'll answer yeah, them yeah. Uh, either via email or in another like public mailbag. But we do love to hear from you. So, uh, you know, we're around. Happy to happy to chat. That's right. All right. Is this when we tell them this whole episode was just AI versions of us or... <laughs> hey ChatGPT, uh write me an entire oh fun true fact i tried to make a i, I called it wallach nine you know how ChatGPT, you can make your own gpt yeah now? yeah i made a dune gpt oh. and then i said i said list all of the ways just to fact check it i said list all of the ways duncan idaho dies like all of his different deaths and it says uh that hate survives in the children of dune and then doesn't die in Children of Dune. And I was like, you're fucking wrong. You're wrong? fucking wrong, you piece of shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> wrong, wrong, you bastard. And uh, and so I, I can't use it <laughs> for that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, but, oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, again, right. it's limited. We'll it's see. Fun. It's fun to test the limits of it, for sure. Indeed. I also, I got into like a fight with ChatGPT once because I was like, write me a poem that doesn't rhyme. Couldn't do it. I spent like 30 minutes trying to, I'm like, write it in the style of this poet who never rhymes. Write it, you know, write me a sonnet that doesn't rhyme. Always rhymed. I was like, what the fuck is happening? Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's, I guess rhymes are kind of a hard thing. Stop to rhyming shit with mind. wilted leaf. Okay. Stop it. <laughs> wilted leaf. He said real brief. <laughs> and, and much to my relief. And relief. Hey, pretty good.
He was wearing boxer briefs. <laughs> there you go. There's art Beautiful. for you. No Beautiful. AI could come up That's with that. That's human-made art. <laughs> <laughs> An ode okay. to boxer briefs. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. We're also on TikTok at Kamjabar Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.